Is it starting to make sense? When Jason Cochran road-tripped back to his southern roots, he noticed how a lot of our history still echoes from the American Civil War. If you look back and you trace the wires through time, they all sort of plug into the outlet, which is the Civil War. Coming up, we look at what you can learn from visiting monuments to American tragedies. If you'd prefer some serious social distancing, Chris Solomon confirms nothing's really changed in 90 years when an adventurer described the scene at Alaska's least visited national park. He described it as paradise found, this lost world where orchids bloomed in the volcanically warmed soil. And high school buddies remember the summer road trip of a lifetime when they got to see a game at every major league baseball stadium in America. It was our excuse to get off to these different stadiums, and the real meat was the journey in between. You could never do this trip with football. You'd have absolutely no shot. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For more than 100 years, statues of Confederate generals lining a boulevard in Richmond, Virginia, reminded you that it was once the Confederate capital. Now that state officials have decided to remove them, Jason Cochran reminds us that there are many parts of American history that deserve a closer re-examination. He tells us what he learned visiting monuments in his home state of Georgia and across the country. That's in just a bit. As we celebrate our 15th anniversary year of Travel with Rick Steves, let's also revisit a couple of our favorite interviews from a few years ago. We'll hear about the adventure a group of high school buddies will always remember when they fixed up a van and headed to every Major League Baseball stadium in the U.S., plus that one in Canada. We'll hear how much fun it was a little later in the hour. Let's start in one of the wildest places in America, on the Alaska Peninsula. The Aniakchak National Monument and Preserve gets the fewest visitors of any national park, and it boasts no rangers, no trails, and no waiting in line. All the more reason Christopher Solomon went out of his way to hike it a few summers ago. Chris, welcome. Oh, great to be here. So now, is this actually a national park, or what, what's the technicality there? Yeah, so technically, Rick, Aniakchak National Monument and Preserve is its name. And it, it is not a national park, but it is the least visited unit of the 401 properties in the national park system. So nobody goes there. Why do they, why do they even bother thinking of it as part of the system? <laughs> you know, you think that the least visited might be something like the Martin Van Buren National Birthplace. But, right. Uh, no. But no, uh, it's Annie Akchak. In 2012, Annie Akchak had 19 visitors. Last year, it might have ticked up to 100 or so. And you were there with uh, how many people in your party? Uh, three of us. Three of us. Now, where is it and how do you get there? Visualize this for me. If you look at the map of Alaska, Alaska has this big tail that kind of this frozen 1,400-mile tail that wags right. westward at Kamchatka, yeah. and that's the Aleutian Islands. And the base of that tail is the Alaska Peninsula. And that's oh, okay. where Aniakchak is. Now, if I wanted to go there next week, where would I fly? Would I just rent a car and drive there, or how would I get there? So one of the reasons, uh, Rick, that this is not very popular is it's it's hard to get to. From Seattle, where I live, it took us three flights to Anchorage, to King Salmon, to Port Hayden, which is just an airstrip built for World War II in the middle of nowhere on the Bering Sea. And then we backpacked with 65-pound packs for 22 miles to reach the centerpiece of the, the National Monument, which is a gorgeous volcanic crater. So ease of access is not one of its selling points. Is it worth the trouble? Yeah. I, know, <laughs> I was thinking about this on the drive over here and how to summarize it. I've had the good fortune to travel all over the world as a travel writer. I was with a photographer who shoots pictures all over the world in beautiful places. We agreed we'd never seen a place 
as unique as this. Okay, how can you, you write in your article? It's just gorgeous about this that it was mind-bendingly gorgeous. Is it the desolation that's part of it, or what makes it better than just going to any national park? So maybe to convey what it's like, I need to tell you just a little bit about its geologic and human history, which is more interesting than it sounds. Mm -hmm. About the time the Egyptians were ruling the world, a 7,000-foot volcano blew its top with a a force of 10,000 nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. It was one of the bigger eruptions we, we know of. And then the volcano collapsed on itself and created a crater that could swallow Manhattan. That crater filled with water, so it looked like Crater Lake National Park. Then that lake blew out in this biblical flood. And over the next couple thousand years, this lost world was sort of created inside that crater. And it just went kind of unnoticed except for the native peoples for thousands of years until 1930 when this man called the Glacier Priest arrived. And the glacier priest was Father Bernard Hubbard, and he was one of these Jesuit priests who was cut from the old cloth of these swashbuckling sort of Jesuits. And he, he barnstormed all over the 49th state, having these wild adventures by bush plane and by uh, dog sled. His write-ups w- went in the Saturday Evening Post and the National Geographic. And in 1930, he wrote about visiting Antiochchak, and he described it as paradise found, this, this lost world where... Orchids bloomed in the volcanically warmed soil, and the rabbits were gigantic, and they came up and walked right up to his crew, which was a bunch of the Santa Clara football players, and and they felt bad killing them to eat them, but, but they did anyway. So did you read his writing in preparation for your trip? So I did. I read about his writings about the great moon crater of the earth, as he called it. And then what happened is he wanted to go back the next year, 1931, and Aniak blew up again, and he goes back. And talks about it no longer in these Milton-esque kind of paradise found terms, but but in this Dante-esque hellish terms. And right. describes himself peering into this blackened inferno. And then they go into the crater a couple months after it's blown up again, and they nearly die of poisonous gases, and they and they're put their beans on a fumarole, and their beans boil, and they shove a thermometer in the ground, and the thermometer explodes. And it's just this hellish, wild landscape that's the setting. Now we go back 80 years later, just kind of see what it's like. And a lot of the soot has washed off from that 1931 explosion, but it has this kind of sear, flinty beauty. It's this desolation sublime. Once you get into the crater, it's six miles in diameter. It's land of the lost meets nuclear holocaust. So uh, Aniakchak is essentially this vast glacier and the environment around it. The monument itself is inside a, a preserve and the monument centerpiece is this massive crater, and inside it are all these volcanic pimples okay. and freakish kind of yeah, geological freakish, things. I was thinking of like otherworldly. Chris Solomon is telling us about the ultimate socially distanced camping trip right now on Travel with Rick Steves. A few years ago, he and a few friends spent July hiking the length of the Antioch Chak National Monument. It's about 450 miles and a couple of air taxi flights southwest of Anchorage. Chris includes photos of the reserve's weather-beaten landscapes in the Baked Alaska feature article he wrote for Outside Magazine. We link to it in today's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, when you go up there, you mentioned there was more uh, wildlife, more bears than there are people. What evidence of uh, humans did you see up there? You go to any other uh, national park, you see broad-brimmed park rangers, you see Winnebago's, you see Hmm. hiking trails. There's nothing up there. Hmm. We saw one boot print and I saw a little cannery cabin at the Pacific. And are there, that's are there actually trails? 
no trails, no markings. Much of it is tundra, though, so you can just kind of walk where you will. Okay. Do you have maps, and do you have a place to sleep? Tell us just about the, yeah, the, some the, of the very logistics. nitty-gritty logistics. Where did you sleep? How did you get water? What yeah, is... so we backpacked in from Port Hyden, and it was in a dense ground fog, and we used GPS, and we had maps to get in. Other people, when they go in on these trips, they'll fly by float plane and land right in the crater on Surprise Lake, which is this gorgeous hmm. lake, little lake that's a remnant lake of that big prehistoric lake that was in the caldera. And then inside, there's nothing more than knee high in the caldera. So you could camp anywhere you wanted. We camped right down by Surprise Lake, which is this bright green blue that glacial lakes have from the suspended so sediment. is it fertile or is it sort of burned off and, and hellish? It's sort of like a recovering hell. <laughs> There's dwarf fireweed, little pink mm-hmm. plants growing. Right around the lake is electric green lichen growing. And did you just sleep out under the stars in the midst of this old volcano? We brought uh, very sturdy tents because winds can come in and just rip apart tents. Uh, they can come in off the Bering Sea. We, you know, thank God, had gorgeous weather once we got into the caldera for about three days, four days. So what was it like in, in the middle of the night if you woke up at 2 o'clock? Uh, silence, I bet. Silence and more stars than you've ever seen before in the Milky Way above and, and not even a breath of wind. We, we, it was just a gift of a couple days. Just that is an experience many people go through their whole lives and, and never enjoy. Yeah. We go to places every week on our show, and we're, this is a place very few of us have ever gone, and it's America's least visited national park property, Aniakchak, right where the Aleutian Island chain hits the mainland, I guess. I love the way you write about desolation. I mean, you wrote, I'm grumpy about the prospects of our country for many reasons these days, but one thing that still gives me some hope is the ease with which we can still vanish here. How many forgotten corners remain to escape to and explore? If somebody wants to get away from it all, is this it? And, and why does that give you hope? I do find satisfaction. I've met fascinating people in crowded, busy places. But David Foster Wallace wrote about total noise that we live in and I, his concern about that. And I, I find so much satisfaction and calmness in just getting back to quiet places and places where you can feel small and unimportant. And I think we need that in an age when we're just so go, go, go. This is certainly one of those places where you can find that recalibration that I mm-hmm. think is so important. I don't think you have to go to the, in this case, almost the ends of the earth. There are places in the lower 48 that still have, mm-hmm. you know, at least some semblance uh, mm-hmm. of this. But I you do. like to get a, the measure of a place for you as far as how offbeat it is, is how few bars you have in your cell phone. <laughs> That's become sort of a rule of thumb. <laughs> it, it really it really has. I mean, the more you can unplug, the more maybe you get back in touch with some things about yourself and friends that are important. And, uh, and that's more difficult these days. It is. There's, there's a place that matters a great deal to me in the Northwest, and I was pretty sad when I realized I had cell coverage throughout the, uh, the Metau Valley. <laughs> yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Chris Solomon, and he's written an article for Outside Magazine called America's Least Visited National Park Property, Aniak Check. Chris, you wrote, We spend our days trying to be big. In the middle of nowhere, though, we can surrender to smallness again and instead find where we fit in the landscape. Out there where there's nothing is where there's the most to learn. Talk about just the lessons you can get from this, where you say where there's nothing, there's the most to learn. And here in the United States... We have the most, but in some ways we are poverty-stricken, trying to be big. What's the value of being small? You know, being out, for instance, for 10 days in Alaska, things like cell phones didn't work, my fancy GPS watch died. We just had to be in tune with the countryside and 
the things that were happening. And we noticed the autumn changing. We just, the berries got sweeter. The fish started approaching the shore, trying to find, sniff out their home rivers. And the bears started coming down to, to get ready to eat them. And you felt like you were plugging into something more elemental that spoke to you as a human being. That's and it, it. More elemental. I mean, ultimately, our batteries are going to all be dead. And it's elemental. All that other junk that we worry about day after day, not so important, maybe. That's a very important lesson of travel. Chris Solomon, thanks for going there. Thanks for writing about it. And thanks for inspiring us to find a place where there are fewer bars on our cell phones. Oh, my pleasure. Just ahead, we search for America at its historical flashpoints and in its baseball stadiums. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. Jason Cochran takes the curiosity of a journalist with him when he travels. He's a pioneering travel blogger and editor-in-chief at Fromers.com. Lately, Jason's written about how America tells its stories after visiting battlefields, disaster zones, and memorials, especially in his native south. He found the whole story about some of the country's most important monuments has sometimes gone missing. He explores this in his book called Here Lies America, Buried Agendas and Family Secrets at the Tourist Sites Where Bad History Went Down. Jason, good to have you back. Thanks, Rick. I'm glad to be here. So where did you travel to make this book, and uh, why did you write it? Well, I wanted to write it to sort of understand who we think we are. I wanted to go to the places that we collectively as Americans have decided were important in terms of our sacrifice to get to the place we're at today. Hmm. And so originally I started with a very long list of places where bad things have happened, you know, so I had to narrow it down to places that were touristy, places that might have had a gift shop and a parking lot. So taking that set of major tourist sites, the places your dad would have taken you in the station wagon and pointed at the sign and say, that's where Pickett charged. That's where I wanted to go because those are the places we've all agreed say something about America because people tend to go to them in numbers. The places that are in charge of holding on to them and showing them to people and telling future generations why they should think it's important. And that's where it starts to get a little bit murky. When you start digging into the past of these places, you realize that they got to us through very circuitous means and also so did the interpretation of them so that what it might have meant to the person who lived it is different from the what it meant to the person who put the statues there 30 years later to what it means to people now. It could be all different. You talk about this notion that we have lies, frankly, about our past and our patriotic mythology that shape our perspective today, and uh, they become sort of uh, embraced and accepted as part of the story. What did you learn in general in that regard? The concerted effort with which events in American history have been manipulated by others so that the future generations have a specific view of them is not a political book. It's a book about me driving around the country, having funny moments and strange moments uh, at these different places I visit and learning 
things I never would have expected about these places, like how they came to be. But there is sometimes, if you dig in the past of these places, there are politics of those times. I'll give you an example. If you drive through the American South, and I'm uh, from Georgia, by the way, since the 1700s, my family goes way back. Hmm. If you drive through the American South in front of almost every courthouse and every small town, you'll see the famous little statue on a pedestal of Johnny Reb, the guy from the, you know, the Confederate forces. Every single town you go to, you'll find this. Hmm. What I discovered in the course of researching this is almost never were those things placed there right after the Civil War. Civil War ended in 1865. But if you look at the next one you drive past, look down at the plaque, look at the year. I'll bet you anything. It is probably from like the 19-0 years or the 19-teens. Hmm. And you have to wonder, this was 50 years after the fact. There's a story here. How did they all suddenly show up? So that's one thing I go into well, when I go in. What uh, is that I, story? Why all of a sudden did they want to memorialize that? It was a concerted propaganda effort, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. It was, it was an education effort, I think is the way they would have put it. Think about this. I mean, let's pretend that you're a resident of the South and uh, you're probably 25 years old in 1900 and your grandfather is a mess because he had been through the war. You hear stories about how much land you used to own. And so you're upset that you don't own that anymore. So there's a lot of resentment happening in the South. So the children and the grandchildren of the people who who went through the Civil War and, you know, suffered those blows and dealt those blows. They were the ones who came around to build these statues because they wanted to reframe or at least expand in their view, the way people saw the South and what it thought it was fighting for at the time. I mean, obviously, there's people who will tell you even today that what they put on those statues is not the same thing that they would have written even in the 1860s because the passage of time had colored things. But it was an effort. There were women's groups by the hundreds of thousands. These women joined these groups and they would put out a catalog and you could pick which statue you wanted. And then they would send their members to Hector and to lobby the local governments. They would make sure that those statues were never placed in the cemetery, which is where these statues should usually go, but make sure it was in front of the school or in front of town hall where people would make sure to see it. So it was all an incredibly concentrated effort. And the result, I think, huh. worked because people don't even know about it anymore. So, so that was, you write about the United Daughters of the Confederacy in your book. That was yeah, that group. The, one of the largest groups. I mean, to give quickly how an idea of how successful this was, in the 19-teens when they were refurbishing the Times Square subway station in Manhattan, the designer of the station put little battle flags from the Confederacy in tile all around near the roof line in New York City because the mother of the publisher of the New York Times above the station had been a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Most New Yorkers don't even notice those battle flags from from the rebels, you know, in their station, but they are there. And they effectively change a whole nation's understanding about a, a histor- uh, episode in their history. Yeah, and at the time, too, there was a sort of a detente between the North and the South. No one wanted a war to flare up again, which is, right. I think, what Reconstruction had been about, kind of. So there were, I think people on both sides let the other one get away with whatever they wanted to as long as they weren't fighting. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of how these things uh, appeared unchallenged at the time and how even now we don't talk about exactly how they got there. And it happens, by the way, on national park land, too. We're not just talking town squares. Mm -hmm. Even the statues within those parks were usually donated by someone who donated the land, who said you couldn't move the statue if you open the park. Things get to us some way. And the people who set aside the land and put up the signs all had intentions. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're on a road trip through some of America's most notorious sites, where death, disaster, and destruction are its claim to fame. Our guest is the travel writer Jason Cochran. Jason's written Here Lies America. Buried agendas and family secrets at the tourist sites where bad history went down. 
Jason's the editor-in-chief at Fromers.com. He writes several of their guidebooks. He co-hosts a weekend travel talk show with Pauline Fromer in New York City. Jason's website is jasoncochran.com. Let's talk about Civil War tourism, because the Civil War was a sightseeing attraction even when it was going on, wasn't it? <laughs> Foolishly, yeah. Huh. In 1861, Americans hadn't really experienced you know, regular war. There'd been the Mexican War way over there, and it wasn't huge. So when the first battle looked like it was going to happen in Manassas, which isn't too far from Washington, D.C., some of the, the gentry in the middle class rented uh, coaches to take them out 25 miles so they could sit on the side of the battle and watch it as they picnicked, if you can imagine. So we have now rich people in their beautiful coats or when they're looking through their lorgnettes huh. at a battle. Of the Civil War, which, and you can imagine how it went. It went incredibly poorly because the battle was a disaster, one of the worst in the, the whole course of the war. The people were overrun by retreating troops. Some of them were injured. And one of them, a congressman from New York who was among the viewing party, raised his hand and said, excuse me, please don't arrest me. I'm a congressman from New York. And of course, they immediately arrested him, put him in prison, where he wrote a best-selling book about his adventure. You know, so much of what we have today in America is, uh, in our travels and in our sightseeing and so on, it's related to the Civil War, isn't it? So much of who we are today, if you look back and you trace the wires through time, they all sort of plug into the outlet, which is the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And before the Civil War, you know, there were similar things I think you could probably stretch back to. But our genesis of the, of the society as we know it now fractured then, and it stayed fractured. And today it, it has this interesting attraction. I mean, you write about Andersonville. It was like America's concentration camp, right? There's thousands of people killed there. That's how we see it now. There were many Civil War prisoner of war camps, both on the North and the South, and on both sides they were incredibly deadly. But the one that is only one, really, that's honored as a major tour site is Andersonville in Georgia, which people in the South feel a little upset about because well, how come there's not one in the North? This is the right. kind of thing we started discovering. Why do we honor this and why don't we honor that? That's also part of the politics of history and politics of how we're taught things. But this one showed up in Georgia and it was one of the worst. I forget the number, but maybe 12,000 people in two years perhaps died there. Yeah. It's a sobering thing. You don't think of it, though. You went to Antietam on your research? Antietam. Antietam is one of the very few. Usually when you go to these national park sites, it gets very boring very fast. There's these giant lead signs that talk about what this general did and that one and which maneuver they made. And you just fall asleep just reading the sign. Uh, there's a reason for that. It's because originally the War Department was in charge of these old battle sites before the National Park Service was created and took them. But with Antietam, it's one of the only places you can see past all of that, you know, verbose sort of play-by-play -play stuff. And you actually understand its history, its actual human history. Every year in early December in Antietam, which is not too far from Gettysburg, but it's in uh, northern Maryland, there's something called the illumination. And for every single person who was killed, wounded, or went missing on that incredibly bloody day, they put a candle. So really, I think there's something like 15,000 candles as you drive through this park in the dark and they undulate over the hills like a little constellation that stretches way out past where your eye can see. And you realize every single one of these was a human being. Every one of them was someone's hope or child, you know. And it starts to really put it together. This isn't just some random thing you, in a book. This is real with real lives and faces that we'll never see. And uh, it can get very, very upsetting because finally, for once, you're connected with this disaster, which allegedly was supposed to be part of your fabric of your country. But you're connected with candles and gauzy emotion rather than gritty reality. You wrote, yep. people never see the bodies. No one shows them the, the silent nope. screams of the bereaved parents. Uh, do you get a sense that war is a little bit uh, romanticized in the way we cover it in our sites? 
probably a psychologist could go on about it, but I think absolutely it is. Um, When one fights a battle, whether you win or lose, usually you tell yourself that it was a noble cause. You do it so that the pain of not only the memory, but of the experience and the result, so it's not so painful. It makes it better if you feel like you were right. That's one reason all those statues went up in the South, right? Because it made the South feel like we were still right. We'll break if you tell us we're wrong and we believe it forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just like that, I think, with war. It's funny. In the old days, we expressed that differently. And if you go to Westminster Abbey in London and you look at the statues, there'll be an army general or some sort of officer representing everyone who died. Nowadays, we tend to be very individualized about, Hmm. uh, you know, in Oklahoma City or or down at uh, lower Manhattan. Every person gets their moment to shine and to to speak from the past and say who they were and what was lost. Wasn't so much the case for most of American history. So it's it's interesting that the way we respond to them is slightly changed, but still at heart, we still want to say it didn't break us. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran, and his book is Here Lies America, and it's about visiting historic sites where bad things happened and great battles. Uh, I mean, Gettysburg is a big part of your book. It's a town that made a fortune off of a slaughter, isn't it? On purpose. Yeah, b- back in the day, there was no way to collect fallen bodies of, of soldiers. So you would pin a note, my name is James, get me back to my mom, or something, you'd hope that someone would find the note and do it. Hmm. If you forget that Lincoln, when he showed up at Gettysburg uh, four months later to deliver the Gettysburg Address, it was about, can we please agree to honor these people? And the reason he was saying that is in the fields around him at that moment, there were still Southerners from four months before who had never been claimed or who had been buried under an inch of topsoil. And then people would steal their plank headstones for firewood. It was a terrible scene. Um, and so he was begging for some sort of national system for military cemeteries, which eventually we got. So Lincoln, uh, but that's what Gettysburg was about. Let's honor Gettysburg, guys. What are we doing? Lincoln actually went to Gettysburg and it was surrounded by still rotting corpses to give the Gettysburg yeah. address. In those first few months, it was July when the event happened. Gettysburg smelled so bad that residents were walking around with peppermint oil smeared on their upper lips, <laughs> and the town was getting a terrible reputation. It's mm. a dreadful name. So um, it needed to rehabilitate itself. So very soon after, very conveniently, they discovered a mineral springs that was great for you. So mm. <laughs> they rode that for about 50 years. Mm-hmm. But they also realized that people wanted to come and see about this place they'd heard about, often because someone they knew had died there or been injured there. What they would do is one state would put up a beautiful memorial and all the people would from that place would go and look at it, admire it. And so Gettysburg's city planners started putting really crummy, awful temporary signs on empty pastures saying, well, this is where Maryland's would be, essentially. And so people from Maryland would come up uh. and get indignant and say, what? How come Pennsylvania has a great one and ours is terrible? And they'd go back and they'd lobby for a lavish new monument. Now, Gettysburg is hundreds and hundreds of these monuments like a chessboard after a game but it's all because it was like an arms race you know amongst these different states to make it the best tourist site possible all of that roots back to the fact that it was so embarrassed about what had happened there and horrified that it desperately needed to remake itself and that was one of the mechanisms it could use and now it's got that segway tours and ghost walks and uh still cashing in Mm mm-hmm I think there's a big difference between dark tourism, you know, going to Chernobyl mm-hmm. and going to these sites that I go to. You don't go necessarily to these sites because the horrible thing. You kind of go because this is America's horrible thing. And it makes you start to wonder, why don't we go to X place? Why mm-hmm. we pick this place? And I also found some places that were complete 100% recreations that actually weren't that way. They've been built again so that people would have a place to visit. 
Ward's Theater being an example. You know, the real one collapsed in the 1890s. So it's very interesting to see where Americans have put their chips on what historical stories they want to tell and which ones they've completely left behind, like Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which completely changed uh, labor rules and the safety of workers. And uh, the Colfax riot, which was a horrible slaughter of an African-American group of politicians because there was a rival group of white politicians that also wanted those seats. Really fascinating, terrible, dark stories that were completely left by the wayside for the ones that we chose. And I think exploring which ones are which says a lot about who we are or who we wish we were. Jason Cochran is the author of Here Lies America, about the stories behind the plaques at many of America's monuments and memorials. Craig's listening in from Chicago at 877-333-7425. Hey, Craig. Hey, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk with you, and hello to Jason Cochran. I've read a lot of books on war and notorious sites, and the one that sticks with me the most is Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. That, of course, is about the American Indian Wars of the late 19th century and what some contend is the genocide against the Amer- Native American. How does Native American history figure in your book? When it comes to Native American sites, there's a good reason why there aren't many. At first, I thought the reason was going to be that Americans just don't care, which is true, I think, but that's not often the reason why there's nothing memorializing these places. In the case of Wounded Knee, it's a choice of the local people to keep the government out. The federal government does not control that land. It is their land. And they don't want a national park there because of, well, look who killed all these people to begin with, the federal government. So it's a choice. And it's also among those people, it's more of a tradition to leave a grave untended. That's part of the culture. And so Wounded Knee is sort of an outgrowth of that. The fact we don't honor it, there's no big museum. You won't be able to go there and buy keychains. It's because the local people took control of the way they wanted to retell that story. There are ones that are controlled by our government. Um, Sand Creek in Colorado is a good example. It was an attack just as heinous, really, as it was Wounded Knee. Mm-hmm. But it's not often visited. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's rural. A lot of these memorials where these horrible slaughters happened mm-hmm. are in inaccessible places. That doesn't help. But, um, you know, Sand Creek, although they do their best to honor it, the buildings are temporary. The road to it is dirt. You know, the event is purely in your imagination because there's not a building or something you can point to. You just say Mm -hmm. it was over there in that field. So I think a combination of inaccessibility, unfortunately bad theatrics, which is part of the presentation of these places. And I think generally the way the American culture tends to write out the histories of these people and what the culture did to them back then. All these things sort of conspire to make them Mm -hmm. super minor. And there's not one that you could consider a major attraction Mm -hmm. or tourist site. Thanks for your call, Craig. Thanks, Rick and Jason. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jason Cochran, and his book is Here Lies America, Tourist Sites Where Bad History Went Down. You put a lot of work and a lot of miles into making this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to wrap up our conversation, what's the takeaway? What would you want people to appreciate about this whole dimension of our culture and, and our our, you know, yeah. our world. Well, I, I'd like to. us to read the inscriptions a little more, to look at the plaque dates, to sort of ask why and how things got to be the way they are. Because I don't think often, um, I don't think our, our mythology about ourselves always matches up with the actual history of ourselves. I think it, it helps to sort of know who we want to be as much as know what we did, um, because that's the way you sort of arrive at who we are. All right. Well, congratulations on a fascinating book. Jason Cochran, Here Lies America. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. 
Jason Cochran has more to say about his own Southern heritage in an extra to today's show. You'll find it at ricksteves.com radio. From America's past to America's pastime, the ballpark boys are next on Travel with Rick Steves. Summertime usually means it's baseball season in America. Back in 2011, four high school buddies from Seattle outfitted a VW van to spend the summer driving across the country. They wanted to watch the home team play at each one of the 30 Major League Baseball stadiums. They called themselves the Ballpark Boys, and two of them joined us in our Travel with Rick Steves studio the following year to share the pure pleasure of what it's like to be young and on an adventure. Kellen Larson had just graduated from high school, and Travis Smith was wrapping up his freshman year at college. Travis gets us started. Well, we bought a van and decided to take it around the country and see a baseball game in every major league baseball park across the country in 28 different cities. We saw 30 different ballparks. And each time we were there, we saw the home team play. And we traveled across, what was it, 36 different states, over 15,000 miles, and it took us 54 days. What a trip. It was amazing. Yeah, it was great. So four of you buddies from high school. That's right. 54 days, 28 cities. Every ballpark. Actually, yeah. every ballpark. Yeah. Where did this idea come from? It's been kind of a kitchen table dream that we started when we were about 12. Uh, we've always been big Seattle Mariner baseball fans. We played sports together as kids, but we never played baseball on the same team. So our love of baseball grew around us watching the Mariners. Living up here in the northwest in Seattle, you're about 1,000 miles away from any other ballpark. Probably farther than any other major city in the lower 48 from a ballpark. True. Yeah. Well, so you were Seattle's, sort of starved to try out some new ballparks. Yeah. And so our original goal was, well, let's go watch the Mariners take a road trip down to Southern California and see the Angels, maybe, maybe the A's play. And uh, it slowly developed into, well, why don't we try and see all 30 ballparks? <laughs> everybody, everybody who enjoys <laughs> Mission baseball creep. wants to do that. Yeah. So let me get this straight. There's four of you guys packed into a little van. Yeah. And uh, you had to live together. Did you sleep in the van? We slept in the van a lot, yeah. The main thing that we did before we left was we tried to compile a big list of all the friends and relatives we had all across the country. Right. And so in probably about half the cities, we were able to stay with someone that we knew. But a lot of the times, we didn't even have time to stay in a city, and so we'd just have to drive all through the night. And uh, in places where we didn't have a solid contact, we just set up shop in the van. We drove a Eurovan, which has the ability to pop the top up, and it can actually sleep four people. The back seat pulls out into a small bed. And the top folds out, and you can sleep four, two on the bottom, two up top. And many a night we spent in... But did four actually sleep? If you call it sleeping, <laughs> it, was, it was tough sometimes. Now, now, were you good luck? You went to every team. Were you good luck when you came into town? We actually, we weren't. Our, especially earlier in the trip, our record actually for the home team was quite poor. <laughs> we, uh, I think the home team only won probably about 10 games. 10 games. 10, 10 games out of 30. Games. So, yeah, so really we weren't good luck, So actually. you're basically, if you were rooting for the home team, you were batting about 33% or something. That's right. It's true. It's a good oh batting average. Good batting average. Not, 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 not a great <laughs> winning percentage, yeah. Now, if, if you had the money, would you have preferred to just fly from city to city? Not in the least, no. The Why driving not? was one of the best parts of the whole experience because we really got to see you know, all the people in the whole country. We saw every environment and every culture, really, that the U.S. has to offer. And that was really driving was the only way to do it. Flying, you just arrive at the airport. By driving, we saw the changes in between Southern California and Texas or Colorado and Minnesota. Travis, what are some of the cultural differences you noticed as you, you really traveled every corner of the country? Well, one of my favorite places to see was Detroit, Michigan, you know, a big city that's 
about as opposite as you can be from Seattle. It's not very clean. And the first thing we noticed when we when we drove in was a building that was just half gone, just completely destroyed. The atmosphere in the city was very different. Everything closed at about 9 p.m. Gas stations closed their doors. You could not go into the store. And uh, actually, Kendall, one of the other kids who went on the trip, was asked to take a photograph of a family outside of Tiger's Ballpark. And they tipped him $2. And he said, well, you don't need to tip me $2. And they said, well, <laughs> you didn't run off with my camera. So you really noticed a, a difference just, we hear about the economic struggles in our country from region to region. Correct. Yeah. Kellen, what was your feeling about yeah. that? Did you go into places in the country that you, it was really clear, God, a lot of these businesses are boarded up. Yeah, for sure. Like in Detroit, as we were talking about, there were a lot of skyscrapers and it seemed like half of them were just abandoned. So yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of really high-end places, but also driving through East Oakland was an experience. And then we went to Texas where everything was big and there was, you had to drive about 45 minutes to get to any grocery store. So you saw these cultural differences. Is baseball something that is in common across the country or, or what was your take on how baseball fits in with all these cultures. I still believe that baseball is the most popular sport in the United States. So you'd say it's the great American game still. It is the... Uh, we were looking at present America through its pastime. The baseball parks were kind of our skeleton of the trip. It was our excuse to get off to these different stadiums. And the real meat was the journey in between the, the culture that we experienced, the differences between St. Louis and Chicago, cities that are just a couple hours away but at the same time, one is just red brick buildings with lots of stone and a big military influence, and the other one is hustle and bustle. And in it all is a love of baseball, love of the baseball team, and some cities supported their teams much better than others. Where did you find the most avid support? I would say Philadelphia. Philadelphia was yeah, really great, yeah. If somebody says football is really the new American game, how would you respond? See, it's just not the same for me. You get football once a week, twice a week if you count Monday night, but... You could never do this trip with football. You'd have absolutely no shot. I just, there's something about baseball. It's played every day, you know, it's a long season. I read in your blog, football is an affair. And baseball is a marriage to a sports fan. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. You have to deal with baseball every day. And it can be tough sometimes. You live football it. Is just in once in good times and bad. You right. truly live it. And football's exciting, and I love football, don't get me wrong, but right. only with this trip can you do baseball because they play every day. Travis Smith and Kellen Larson are two of the ballpark boys. Lifelong friends who visited all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums in one summer. You can listen to their entire 2012 interview with us from a link to our archives. It's posted with today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Okay, now you visited all 30 Major League parks in the country. Kellen, what was your favorite park of all of them? I really liked the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. Whenever anyone asked me my favorite, I was having a tough time deciding whether I was going to view it objectively just by the, the structure and so I just decided to input all of it, all the experience, everything. And in Cincinnati, there was it was a beautiful day. We got a private tour of the field, and there was an amazing game, a walk-off home run. And uh, so I'd say Great American Ballpark was my favorite. I really liked PNC Park in Pittsburgh. It was really cool. AT&T in San Francisco also. Apart from how good the game was, what particular stadium do you think is the most successful? That's a tough one. I might have to go with uh, Petco Park in San Diego. Hmm. I loved Petco. Why? It's really kind of expansive. They've got a huge concourse. And it's built into the city. Yeah, it's really into the city. They have like, like a park. Just there, next there is. There. There's yeah, like... in the, you know, you have to scan your ticket, and then in the actual gates is like a large grassy area. Like well, a... apartment complex is opening down yeah. to yeah. it. Is there a ballpark ritual or tradition that really struck you? You've seen 
Uh, I read in your blog one stadium has fireworks. Uh, what what what, yeah. what distinguishes a stadium uh, as far as Sweet school? Caroline in Boston mm-hmm. was uh, was great. Everybody gets up in the seventh inning stretch and Fenway and sings along to a Neil Diamond. So that was really cool. Why do they do that there? It's just a tradition. That's a good question. It's evolved. It's, uh, Nobody knows. Travis, what what ritual struck you? People sing different songs in the sixth and eighth innings, and uh, in Texas, both in Houston and in the ballpark in Arlington, they sing Deep in the Heart of Texas. In Kansas City, they sing I've Got Friends in Low Places, and then (laughs) in Milwaukee, they have Broadverse Eating Contests, (laughs) believe it or not. As stadiums are being torn down and rebuilt and so on, a lot of big stadiums are moving out into the suburb. What's your preference, urban stadiums or suburban ones? Now that we've seen them all, my opinion is if you have to drive over 20 minutes to the stadium, it's not worth it. For us, well, living here in Seattle, you can walk to the ballpark from downtown, but in, in Arlington or in Kansas City to watch either a Royals or a Rangers game, you had to drive probably 35 minutes outside of the yeah. city to go see the game, which means... But wait they... a minute, you just drove 15,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> I think what he's going to is it, it adds a lot if it's in downtown. Sort if it's of in the part city. of it. Woven you, into you the can, urban land. If you can just be in the city and walk by that's the stadium, great. I think that's really cool. Yeah. You take a classic stadium like the house that Ruth built, Yankee Stadium. They tore it down, right? Built they a new did, one. yeah. Is yeah, that, I've is, actually been to both. You've I, been to both. I how went how to does the anyone one. compare? I really like the new one. Actually, the old Yankee Stadium was the only other ballpark I'd ever been to when we started the trip, aside from the Kingdom and Safeco. They're both really close to each other. I can't really decide which one I liked better because the old Yankee Stadium had, it just looked enormous and it had this feel to it, but also it was kind of dirty and, and old. Um, so there's a freshness to the new one, but it's still, it it, it's and a classic it's, still. I mean, it's, it's, it, it does the trick. It is. It's it's very majestic. Travis, and the atmosphere is unbeatable in, in the new Yankee well, Stadium. Well, you got the biggest payroll. You've right? got some of the right. big, but not only that, but you've got the most devoted fans. We said that Philadelphia had some of the loudest, kind of most in-your-face fans, but in New York, before each game, they shout out the first name of every starting player until they give them a wave. And if somebody <laughs> makes a great catch, you're going to get a standing ovation. You don't get that in other yeah. ballparks. So where where was the opposite? Where were the fans just kind Toronto. of Toronto? <laughs> really? <laughs> Toronto is so Canada. Maybe just it's the Canadian. Get it. It's the one Canadian so, stadium in there. Which was it was <laughs> our Toronto stay was great, but. You guys liked uh, the stadium, I remember from your blog. I liked the yeah, stadium. It was it was cool looking. The, it has a hotel built into center field. Right. Which is pretty unique and, and kinda cool looking, but uh the atmosphere and the game. There were six thousand five hundred fans there oh, at a stadium yeah. that seats over fifty. Oh, that's depressing right there. Yeah. Now you saw all the stadiums. Is there a difference or what is the difference between the National League and American League from the experience of going to the game? Well, one of the things that we enjoyed about this trip was baseball does not have set dimensions. You know, in football, it's 100 yards. Uh, In baseball, there's no dimensions, no regulations for how high the fence has to be or how deep it is. So truly, every stadium was different from every other one that we saw. And between the American and National League, we really didn't notice anything at all. Okay, so it varies from stadium to stadium, regardless of... How does tailgating, uh, is there a tailgating culture? Yeah. I, I associate it with football. Really the one place that we experienced that was in Milwaukee at uh, Miller Park. And they have this huge, I think really the only park that does it really nicely is everybody just goes and it's like $5 parking right next to the stadium. Very cheap. And you just get out your stools and you get out your, <laughs> your brats and you... We weren't used to it. You know, we weren't anticipating it. We pulled up about two hours before the game hoping to at least experience some of the energy that existed up in Milwaukee and... Right. Milwaukee was my favorite ballpark because everybody else was pulling out bratwurst and beer, and we pulled out our little two-burner stove. <laughs> and you were right part of the scene there. And we made pasta. We made some pasta. <laughs> There's probably conviviality there where you get to meet people and so on. 
Our van was a loud, painted, very colorful vehicle that attracted attention. And as we sat in parking lots and sat outside the van, we had more people than we could imagine come up and ask us about our trip, ask us about different ballparks. If you closed your eyes right now, and then I took you to a concourse in some stadium mm-hmm. around the country, and you opened your eyes, and you just looked at the food that was being served, could you identify the park? I think we'd have a good chance, yeah. What would, be, is, what would be really characteristic? I think some of the best stuff we had was AT&T Park in San Francisco. They had a lot of really good seafood. Travis Clam got a bread bowl. chowder bread bowl, which was just a hit. <laughs> There's a lot of barbecue in uh, Kansas City was really good. We had some of that. Some the fruits, Dodger dog. I was going to say, in, yeah. In, uh, some stadiums have their quintessential, almost unique uh, food that if you showed it to us, like the cinnamon bread in Anaheim, the special sauce bratwurst in Milwaukee, we could identify it right away. What is the uh, giveaway food or the telltale food at Mariner Stadium in Seattle? I'd say it's the Ichi Roll. Ichi Roll. Probably our Japanese influence. Are we the only stadium that has sushi? We might. We, are one, we did not run into sushi very often so on this Seattle's trip. Seattle's got sushi and Seattle's got yeah. Ichiro. We do. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel to Rick Steves. I'm speaking with the ballpark boys, Kellen Larson and Travis Smith, half of a foursome that spent their summer break driving around the country visiting 28 cities, all 30 parks in the major leagues, 15,000 miles packed into a little minibus. So, Kellen, you drove... 15,000 miles, or you drove a quarter of it, I suppose. How did you guys uh, pass the time in the drives? Uh, We listened to a lot of music. We had a rule where each of us had to make three uh, playlists, each consisting of 20 songs, and so we listened to that. Were there ground rules in the car? The driver got to choose the music, and that was pretty much it. There was a lot of sleeping going on. You took turns sleeping and driving then. Right, yeah, we had shifts. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right, yeah. We had a rule where you have to have two awake at all times to prevent drowsy driving, which is very dangerous. Which was needed because we had four overnight drives on this trip. Some of them were long hauls. So you had shifts. With four of you, you could do it. That's right. What about road food? How how does a teen diet work when your parents are thousands of miles away? I have not (laughs) wanted to eat at a Subway for... I haven't since Months. Toronto. I mean, it's it's just you know it's a lot of times we're in a hurry. It's and, limited, uh, and also you just get off on the side of the road when you need to get gas, and you say, okay, we need to get food here, and there are limited options. So, at one point, we ordered ten tacos from the back of a gas station in southern Texas because it seemed like the best food, Ill-advised. something that wasn't prepackaged, and mm. um, that was that was tough to digest. Where could you channel Joe DiMaggio best? Was there any stadiums where you really felt there was the spirit of the old stars there? I mean, you'd probably say Fenway Park in Fenway Park, uh, in yeah. Boston. It's the yeah. only one, really. Well, it and Wrigley are the only. Fenway really Park's celebrating its 100th year anniversary this year. Wow. If there's not stories in the in, oh. in between Fenway, those we lines. were in Fenway on the Fourth of July, actually. We were in oh, Boston, which is cool. perfect. Saw the Boston right. Pops, the fireworks show over the the river. It was when I say 4,256. What comes to mind? Pete Rose. What stadium? Great American Ballpark. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, yeah, not there, but, <laughs> but that monument. At the Great the, American Ballpark, yeah, the, the, in the Reds Hall of Fame, they have a wall that's completely covered, stretches up three floors, completely covered in baseballs, and there are 4,256 of them. Wow, one hit each, hit each Pete Rose hit. The most hits in baseball history, most more than Ty Cobb? Yep. Oh, man. We need a hit, so here I go. Ball one. And Cullen, was there anything for you that was like a pilgrimage and you finally got there and you go, yes, this is what I've always dreamed of seeing? I really loved 
in City Field in New York, we saw a Subway Series game, Mets Yankees. Oh yeah! And the energy in that building was oh. amazing. Whenever either team scored or did something great, the noise was just tremendous. It was the largest crowd ever at that ballpark. Yeah. Now, what about when the uh, White Sox played we the Cubs? Also we also saw, saw that, that game. game. Fortunately, uh, in, you did. In, now, that was USL Planning. In yeah. US Cellular Field, we saw the White Sox play the Cubs, but I felt like that rivalry was not as vicious <laughs> as the New York. Subway Series, um, Crosstown Rivalry, I saw multiple fans wearing jerseys that were split in half. The left side would be Cubs. Oh, really? Cubs blue and the right That wouldn't happen in New York, No, you're one of the other in New York One of the other. That's right. Another one of the great games we saw, though, was the Red Sox in Philadelphia, which doesn't happen very often. That's interleague series, and Uh it was like a a weekday matinee, which also doesn't happen very often. Thursday afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great game. We saw uh, Reds at the Great American Ballpark. The Cardinals were in town. That's a really big rivalry. That was a lot of fun. What was the most memorable time you met a, a current player? Curtis Granderson? Yeah, Curtis Granderson when we were in uh, Tampa Bay at was he, Tropicana Field. Was he friendly? Field. Was he happy to see him? He was amazing. He was like a very real guy. I didn't expect it. Did he, he know what you were doing? We were on the field at the Trop, and uh, they were taking batting practice, and it was really great. Derek Jeter had just gotten his 3,000th hit a couple right. games before, and there's Jorge Posada and all these Yankees. Oh. And we're standing on the field, and Curtis Granderson comes over, and he's like, hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> we just said... Hey, this is what we're doing, and you told him what you're doing. It. We did, and what he's did he like, say? he's like, no way. How many have you been to so far? And he like talked to us about it for a couple of minutes. Got See, a picture. Every great. player in the majors would love to talk to you if they really knew. What we you were doing we even had thing. the opportunity to interview Charlie Manuel, the skipper of the Philadelphia Phillies, and we talked to him about his opinions on different ballparks versus our opinion on different ballparks. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. We you guys could be consultants when people are making parks. It's true. Hey. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Travis, what did you learn about your best friends that you didn't know before the trip? Despite anything that we may live through, we have certainly had our fights along the way at the end through it all. Uh, these guys are still my best friends, and I think it'll always be that way, no matter what stands in our way, because... Let me get this straight. The trip was not all happy the entire time. We spent, <laughs> we, at one point, we had 22 straight hours in a car. And if, if four guys in that small of a space don't get to you, I don't know what will. But uh, Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you never had to strap anybody to the roof. We were close. We were getting there, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kellen, when you look back 50 years from now, what are you going to tell your grandkids about this adventure? Uh, I'm going to let them know how nice people were to us. We experienced amazing just hospitality and generosity from so many people, people we'd never met before, that would come up to our van, ask us about our trip. We'd tell them a little bit, and they'd say, well, what can we do to help you out? I was really blown away by a lot of the responses we got, that people offering us free meals, free nights on their couch, you know, and it really meant a lot to us. And I have to say, if uh, if one thing stuck out for me, of just the wildest thing that happened, it had to be, we remember this, driving through southern Texas on a stretch of I-10 going west to San Diego, where we ran into the world's, or at least the most extravagant lightning storm I've ever seen, right along the border where a flash of lightning would illuminate Walmarts and Walgreens on the right in America, and about 50 yards on your left were little shacks of houses that were illuminated by the flash of lightning that were in Mexico across the river, and that was, that stood out. I'd say you guys may have been celebrating the end of a school year, but you had quite an education. (laughs) <laughs> in that one summer of travels around our country. Yeah, it was. I, I learned a lot, for sure. Kellen Larson, Travis Smith, the Ballpark Boys. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnicombe. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to KPCC Pasadena for studio help this week. There's more online at ricksteves.com radio. 
Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.